right. Welcome, everyone, to uh, MAM Club Episode 2, our uh, last podcast focused primarily on uh, definition of midlife and challenges in midlife. And as Gareth and I reflected was this whole idea of passion and purpose. Uh, and we thought that was a really good way um, of kicking off the, the next session here. So uh, this one will be focused around purpose, finding the passion of your life, which will dovetail into career, obviously. And so we'll, we'll want to talk about that as well. So let's start there. Um, Gareth, I know you've been poking around a bit. I think you, you found something really good on, uh, on this whole idea of, uh, passion and purpose. Yeah, I found a number of things. Um, probably just to, to kick things off, the focus of our discussions is really on men in midlife. And, uh, I wanted to, you know, see what the interwebs is going to be able to share with us in terms of, uh, some of the basic ideas, but but it probably makes sense to start off with just a, a kind of high level overview. So, you know, what is, you know, what is purpose? Why does it matter? And we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but you know, one of the interesting observations I saw on the, uh, it was on a, the Harvard health website. Uh, and it basically says, you know, for men uh, throughout most of their adult lives, they're defined by what they do and how they do it. And that applies not just to their career, but also to the role in the family. And uh, we know that, you know, there's lots of changes today in, in, in modern life. Um, but even in spite of that, uh, you know, as you age, you can lose your once defined sense of purpose, right? And which is kind of manifest itself as your desire to pursue goals or feel that life is worth living and, and have a general enthusiasm for living. And we, we talked a little bit last episode about, uh, about anxiety in midlife and, uh, and, you know, naturally led to this topic of, you know, what role does having a sense of purpose uh, have in uh, in creating anxiety, and you know, I think if there's a theme that we wanted to 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 cut into this episode, it would be uh, what I would call, or not what I would call, what what other people call purpose anxiety, um, and uh, exploring why that topic matters. You know, intuitively, I think we all know that frustration. Uh, comes quite easily from pointless efforts at home or in the office. You know, if you spent months working on a project that that gets canned at the last minute or the funding gets dropped, uh, you can f- feel obviously like, you know, that six months wasn't worth your time, that there was no purpose to the effort. You know, in other cases, if you're, you know, if you're working on a line, uh, a, you know, a production line, you know, you can spend days, weeks or years, you know, performing a repetitive task. And, and for some people that can irk us at the best of times, whether we get paid or compensated for the work or not. And so one of the, the resounding things I think that, that speaks to our own intuitive understanding of why purpose matters here is that, is that having a, a higher level purpose of some sort, you know, clearly seems to be important for basic things like happiness, life satisfaction, and general well-being. But there is some really interesting data out there to suggest that, that it also, uh, having a sense of purpose reduces your risk of mental illness and, and uh, it has, you know, a knock-on effect uh, in terms of your physical health. So, Makes sense, right? Like, you, you know where you're going, you know, you have, you have a direction. Um, and, I, and I sort of feel like one of the things, you know, special about midlife or different um, is that, uh, if we, if we had this figured out before, it may come up again, right? It rears its ugly head again, where we ask this question again, because I think you and I are chatting before you mentioned that, you know, th- this isn't, this isn't limited to midlife. Um, but it seems to be that this comes up at midlife, whether it's the first time or second or the third. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think many of us can reflect quite easily back on, you know, leaving high school or, or uh, if you went on and did post-secondary education, you know, leaving, leaving that part of your life and asking, you know, the, the grand question, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, and at that point, that gets resolved usually by necessity of finding a job. And, and you know, for many years after that, I mean, for some people, the question persists uh, on an ongoing basis. And, uh, but for others, I mean, they, it doesn't come back up again to this kind of critical midlife point for, for them. And maybe that's it. Let's, let's keep this. Cause I, you know, um, I, I like these little tidbits that fall out here. It's this, uh, what you just said, resolved by necessity, right? Which is very true when you're finishing high school and, and heading into post-secondary, um, or finishing high school and heading into the job market, whatever your situation may be, maybe a little bit different later in your life, right? Maybe there isn't, you know, you don't have necessity to help you resolve your, your worries. Yeah. And, and not to be dismissive of anybody who's going through a, a struggle with finding a sense of purpose. I mean, certainly if you've got other things to worry about, like basic survival needs, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, you don't have time to to worry about whether or not you're living out your life's passion. And so so to some extent, without without being uh, condescending, you know, the, the, the search for purpose is, it can be kind of a uh, a first world problem. If you, if you think of it that way, certainly if your time's occupied with, with fulfilling your basic needs, you don't have time to even think about this problem. But the reality is, uh, and this is the flip side of it is that it's a problem nonetheless. I mean, it's preoccupied, you know, f- philosophers since the dawn of time. So it's not as if I don't want to dismiss the problem either by talking about the fact that, you know, basic needs fulfillment, you know, can avoid you having to even pose the questions, but it, it does. And you're right. And there's a, you know, we are lucky to be in a position to actually discuss this in the first place. So this is, this is a fact and we have to, you know, we have to be thankful for that. And then the, the, the other side of that is, you know, you said first world problem. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I have a canned, canned response to that, which is, well, we live in the first world or for those, those of us who live in the first world, first world problems are our problems. 100%. Um, in that research, you had a quote, I think, that you had read me before. Do you have that? Because that was really good. Oh, the uh, the one about uh, not having a defined sense of purpose. Yeah. So so here, I mean, this speaks to a little bit to the effects of uh, of a lack of purpose, uh, and it's a quote from uh, Harvard affiliated McLean Hospital from uh, a, a mental health counselor named Fred Silverstone. He said, "You know, without a defined sense of purpose, men can begin to wander." They become less motivated to stay active and engage, and it eventually can trickle down and weaken both their physical and mental health. So, so why don't we start by setting some expectations? We can uh, we can we can do a a quick look or overview of the of the problem space here. So, you know, one thing that's really important to point out is that I don't think in the next fifty minutes, or probably not the next fifty years, we're going to be able to solve the problem of the meaning of life. Um, and, and that's kind of sad because certainly if we had that answer, I think we, uh, we'd be able to monetize that and turn it into a profitable business. But, uh, if, uh, 3000 years of philosophical analysis aren't going to ha- haven't gotten us that much closer, I don't, I, I think we need to revise our, our goals here. True. I mean, Monty Python got pretty close. I thought oh, yeah, in, the, in the meaning of like, I'd have to agree for sure. But, but you're, you're very right. Like, I think, I think um, you know, what we can do here is we can identify some good questions to ask. 
some some good things to to think about and to contemplate and sort of start giving out laying out steps um, of how to how how about how how to go about to get to um, to that goal. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not a it's a very difficult answer and it's uh, it's it's a journey if you will for everyone. Now I've got always look on the bright side of life playing in my head. So thanks for the uh, thanks for the earworm. That was, that was life of Brian. Oh right. Darn it. I'm, I'm killing my Money Pythons references. Okay. That's, can't, <laughs> can't be friends. Um, so, so I guess the question is, um, so what, what is purpose? How do we define purpose? Wow. Uh, so I spent a little bit of time thinking about this and, and, uh, you know, because I spent, a more years than, uh, than I want to admit in a, in an academic philosophy department, we certainly encountered this question and, uh, and it's not an easy one to, to, to track down. I, you know, I spent some time on the Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy, just trying to see what the current view is around, you know, this, the overview of research on, on the meaning of life. And I think uh, you get your uh, geek club card back right there. Hey, thanks man. That's, that's, I was just, I was vying for that actually. So awesome. Uh, you know, the, the, the one thing I want to say just in summary of that is, you know, this question has preoccupied people since the dawn of time. You heard me say that. But up until modern times, or at least within the last, you know, several hundred years, you know, the answer to that question was typically answered by religion in some variety or, or some form. And, uh, and religion really defined our place in the universe uh, for, for all the people who, who were subject, subjects of those religion or, or probably not subjects, probably not the right word, but uh, followers of a given religion, you know, the, the respective religions of the world have all tried to provide an answer to the question, you know, why do we exist and why are we here? And so based on the, the answers that a given religion gives to those questions, what we get is a kind of an orienting framework for, for, how we ought to live that basically defines kind of an ethics or a morality that helps define for us what the meaning of life is, you know, uh, and many people find their meaning that way still. Uh, but many people don't as well. You, you know, the st- statistics are out there that I think everybody's probably seen by this point in time that a growing number of, of millennials, and maybe that doesn't apply to our audience, uh, don't subscribe to a formal religion. And so what that means is they don't, uh, they don't have the benefits, uh, uh, regardless of what your views are about religion of at least having an orienting framework to be able to make sense of that. Um, that's true. And the other thing I want to say about, uh, about religion is that you're very right how it defines ethics and morality. And to some extent it defines purpose, but, um, <clears throat> not in all cases. Um, again, in, in many religions, there's just a framework provided for you. So it's, so it's, if you will, it's, uh, it's, it's something, it's a framework versus no framework. Um, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what to do either. Um, it, it's just the guardrails, if you will, that you, that you would live within. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's lots of other ways in which you can find the, you can find those guardrails as it were. I mean, the entire discipline of, uh, of, uh, of, of ethics, uh, of moral theory in, in philosophy, uh, strives to find a set of foundational principles or a set of foundational rules or uh, or other uh, ethical frameworks for understanding what's right and what's wrong and, and how to and how one ought to live one's life and those are very clearly in many cases divorced from religion as well so 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 certainly there are other 
approaches available to to looking at the question of meaning in life and purpose in life. I mean, I think of you know Aristotelian virtue ethics, uh, and you know going going back to Aristotle, which is you know I don't know I think it was three three hundred BC or four hundred BC. I can't remember the exact date. I mean, he was asking that question about what is what is the good life and how how ought one live in a way uh, that that will provide a a fruitful and flourishing life. Uh, and none of that subscribed to any particular theistic commitments about, uh, about a God or, or, or whatever else. So 100% we can, we can, there are other frameworks available and, and, and other ways of thinking about the problem. And, you know, on the opposite end, you've got nihilists who just don't think that there's any meaning or any purpose in the universe as well. So, so, so the, uh, the landscape is pretty wide open. Yeah. And, and sorry, I'm, <clears throat> part of my role here will be pop culture references because I can't uh, I can't resist and every time you say nihilists I just think of the Lebowski, Lebowski. oh yeah yeah, yeah. Say what you want about <laughs> what was the line again from uh, say what you want about uh, socialists at least they've got an ethos Donnie I'm butchering yes. the reference <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'll, I'll take any Donnie reference. Yeah, say, say uh, what you want. Hey, I've, I've got it. I've got it. Say what you want about the tenets of national socialism, Donnie. At least it's an ethos. There are beep nihilists. <laughs> there you go. See, we can we can learn from we can learn from everybody. Um, so that's that's good. I mean, that's a that's a good, if you will, spectrum. Um, uh, that that defines you know what. Uh, what purpose may be and what form, what form it can take. So, um, and I, and I guess this is sort of a, um, you know, a, a silly question, but why, you know, why, why does it matter? It seems to be really important. It's really important to me. Um, uh, but you know, I, I've never actually looked back and be like, well, why, why should it be? Why, why can't I just, you know, keep playing PlayStation every day? Yeah. I think one of the lessons from you know the history of people thinking about this is that you know it's a question that's preoccupied people from since the dawn of time and so it's not a question that seems to be going away and uh and now in 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 modern life you know as we see more people moving away from you know more uh religious or theistic uh conceptual frameworks for understanding the meaning of life you know we're forced to focus on kind of the more mundane but i mean i would you know kind of the basic features of life to, to figure out, you know, what gives meaning and purpose to us. So for us, I think for every person at their core, you know, we know we all feel like we need a reason to live. And very often family takes the focus of that. You know, if you have kids or if you have relatives or parents or what, well, I'm sure you have one of those, um, you know, being able to, to, to live, to take care of those folks in your life, uh, provides you a sense of purpose. Um, but that begins the shift in midlife. And uh, for, for people with children, you know, as your kids get older, you know, you find at this point, you find that you have more time for yourselves. Or if you, if you decided not to have children or you weren't able to have children, you know, you've, you've been left with that. And whatever, whatever was giving you purpose up to this point in your life, you know, may have kind of fallen to the wayside. You know, you no longer have the same career or you're bored in your career or what have you. And so, uh, you know, you're looking to find meaning in other places instead. I think what's different today is, is that we are living longer. Um, and yes, that's a, those are in, in many ways, first world problems. Um, but, but it is a phenomenon where, where because our, our lifespan is now extended, we have the ability to 
tackle multiple challenges. So if, if family was a was a priority as the family begins to mature, you know that that focus can shift somewhere else. Um, also, you know, a focus we may have chosen in our youth and our teens, for example. Um, may not be applicable. The world has changed. So because we've outlived that, if you will, um, you know, back, back in the day when life expectancy was 40 years old, um, not that much would change. Maybe by the time you even had an opportunity to think about, uh, maybe what else should I be doing? That was, that was it for you. But, you know, we, we now have the opportunity to be able to contribute to the world in multiple ways as we go through the various phases of, of life. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was also thinking about just the change in social roles as well. So it's a matter of fact that uh, today for men, social roles are changing, not for all, for all men, but for many men, their social roles are changing. I mean, I, using myself as an example, you know, I've got three kids and uh, for each of those kids, I took parental leave. Um, not many men would make that choice, but I wanted to be able to spend, uh, spend some of that time with my kids uh, and my, and, and my, spouse wanted the opportunity to be able to go back to work as well. Uh, again, both of us, I think we're breaking some of the gender stereotypes when it, when it comes to parenting in that regard. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, not everybody deals the same way with evolving social roles. And so, uh, but the fact is, is as those social roles change, how people define themselves and how they come to understand themselves in the face of those changes also needs to change as well. And I think that, that, that as we're transitioning or at least, as a society, but also as individuals, you know, this question about who we are and, uh, and where we fit in becomes more pertinent as it were. And, 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 it, and I think that's made even worse at uh, worse in a way, I guess. I mean, uh, I, changing social roles, I think uh, is, is, is interesting and, and, and it's just a fact of life. Um, but living in a more interconnected world, you know, we have available at our fingertips through Facebook and, and other social media, you know, a window on other ways in which we could be living as well. And so I feel like part of, part of our, our information ecosystem is just exposure to other people's ways of living from, you know, what people are posting for what they're eating, what they're eating on in terms of, uh, on Facebook or what exercises they're getting into or whatever other ideas that they're promoting with themselves, you know, we're, we're omnipresently aware of other things that we could be doing with our lives. And so the question is kind of sitting there on a regular basis as we engage with social media, which is, you know, how are you living your life and how should you be living your life? Yeah, there's, there's two things in, in what you just said, I think that, that I want to key off of. So, so what is, one is the, and we touched on this in our, in our first podcast, which is around the, what else, the fear of missing out the FOMO where, where yes, you're surrounded and people are constantly bombarding you with, you know, with, here's what I'm doing. What are you doing? Um, the other part that I want to touch on is this, is this changing world, um, where, where things do change. And I, I think we talked about it last time. I'm not sure. Let me just touch on it again, which is this anthropological view of, of, uh, of where men came from, where we as a species came from, right? Like we, we were hunter gatherers for a hundred thousand years or more, uh, maybe even 200,000 years. And now we're thrust into this modern environment where evolution has not caught up at all. Um, so evolutionarily speaking, and by the way, these are, these are, um, biological theories. These aren't things that, you know, can entirely be proven. Um, but you know, we're now thrust into a world where those things don't apply. Like as men, we're, we're, we're still thinking, shit, I should be out hunting and gathering. Um, but that's, that's, that's not 
necessarily the case. Like you said, you're, you know, you took parental leave and you're at home taking care of the kids, which is, which is great. And we're good at it. Um, but that sort of brings into question what's up. I'm not hunting and I'm not gathering and I'm taking care of kids. So what's, what's my role? What's, what am I supposed to be doing? Um, which I think is all of these things that, uh, um, that make this a little bit more, um, a little bit more complicated. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, it made me think about a, a quote from uh, a professor who uh, I remember sitting on one of her talks a, a bunch of years back and uh, it was, you know, kind of getting to the core of, uh, of, you know, just question about roles. I mean, it, it, they were talking specifically about gender and, and its relation to biology. Uh, and what was interesting with that, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I think we're probably going to avoid kind of diving too deeply into this topic, but, um, but just when we think about the, the the kind of naturalistic arguments, one of the things she said really stood out, which was, you know, biology is not destiny, and uh, and 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 just in terms of our key question here, uh, as social roles change, I mean, that's that's a fact. I mean, whether our biology does predetermine sort of some of our our, our predispositions to behave in certain ways, uh, or or it doesn't. Um, what's interesting is that is that either way, we still have to deal with the fact that. The world uh, and and the new rules that that are being presented to us are different in fundamental ways from from the rules that we're used to, and what that does is it creates at least uh, I want to call it a gap. I don't know if a gap's the right word, uh, but a tension between where we're at and where we think we might ought to be, uh, which poses some interesting questions about you know how should we live in order to find a sense of purpose? And when, and if your old way of living is kind of moving away, going the way of the dinosaur and you have to adopt a new way of living, that means redefining yourself in some way. That's right. And and you're very right that, you know, any of these um, hereditary components don't imply destiny at all. What it means though, is that, is that these are, these are things that we have to actively think about, right? They may yeah. not naturally come there. They may take a little bit of effort, which is, which is the whole point of, you know, why we're doing this and, and, uh, what we want to impart. Um, so, so we sort of talked about, you know, what, what, um, what purpose is and, and why it's important, what's been changing over time for us and, and, and why, and, and, you know, and how things are difficult today in, in identifying a purpose or, or even having a purpose. So, um, so maybe we talk a little bit about, you know, how, how we get there, how we get to find a purpose. Yeah. So one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, what are the things that can make finding a sense of purpose better? And what are the things that can stand in the way of being able to do that? And, uh, you know, there's a couple of things that come to mind in terms of at least additional pressures, right? I mean, I, I like to think of this problem as somebody who's in there in the grips of trying to find meaning and purpose in their life. You know, there's, there's, some, there's a few, I think, bad mental habits or, or bad approaches that, that, that can make things a little bit worse. I think the first is, you know, what I would call the illusion of personal responsibility. Uh, you know, and I know, I know many people out there, uh, will have this idea of, of free will that basically we are the masters of our own destiny and that, uh, that any and that every possible future that we want is there available to us if we just you know you know exert the right kind of willpower or or make the right kinds of choices uh you know 
from a social scientific perspective, I mean, we're, you know, there's a lot of really good research that actually shows that we are much more limited in terms of our free will uh, than we'd like to believe. And that many of our choices are, are actually predetermined uh, in some sense. But we yeah, still, by, uh, by, by circumstances, yeah. um, where we are, place, time, and all of those things. I have a, we won't talk about it here. I have a whole rant on this driven off of, uh, in part, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Outliers um, book. But there is, um, there is so much luck, um, good and bad, that plays into uh, ultimate success or what's available to us or what we can and can't do, um, that it, ha- it has to be acknowledged. I don't think you can go through and, and exactly as you said, you know, this fallacy that I can do anything. Um, the fact of the matter is, you know, there are some things you just, you just have to accept you can't. Uh, or you won't be able to. Yeah, I mean, I think we could make a whole episode out of the the whole notion of choice and, and talking a little bit about free will. I've I've got you know kind of at my fingertips some really interesting neuroscientific work that shows you know that, that helps will help inform that discussion as well because there's there's kind of two components. There's the world, which is the piece that you're talking about, and whether or not the world provides us the opportunities that we need to be able to act on our choices. There's also a whole bunch of internal mechanisms inside of our heads that uh, that, that that create constraints and or opportunities as well. So so let's flag that. Awesome. We'll we'll, we'll come back. Yes. Yes. The uh, the bis and the bass. The um, behavioral activation system and the behavioral inhibition system. Right. Um, yeah, very, very cool stuff there. There's That actually makes me think of something else, which is this whole idea of personality. And I want to touch on that here as we, um, uh, in a few minutes, I think when we talk about when uh, how to find your passion and your purpose, that ultimately your satisfaction is going to be rooted in who you are specific for every individual rather than something global. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and and just to, to tie a bow around this idea of personal responsibility and how it affects us when it comes to finding a purpose is if you think that you are responsible for everything that happens in your life and you're at a point in your life in which you're feeling miserable about the way the world is and, the, and, and what your prospects are for the future, uh, feeling like it's your fault isn't going to help. Right, it's only going to make things worse. And I think, you know, just leading, teeing, kind of teeing up that conversation when it comes to this, the subject of purpose is, uh, I think, where we can really help our listeners is, help if, is if they have a more robust understanding of, you know, how much luck there has to be in the world in order for things to turn out in certain ways. Uh, and we can see some of those other constraints. You know, we'll be able to lighten the burden a little bit in terms of this, of, of this pressure of having a personal responsibility for all the purpose and, and, and meaning that happens in your life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the, exactly the, the whole, the corollary of, you know, there's luck involved is it's not your fault. Um, you know, as an individual, you can't look at yourself and consider yourself a failure because there was something you were unable to achieve that maybe, and this is hard to, to, to swallow may not have been available to you in the first place. Yeah. And one of the crazy things is that Another challenge in terms of finding meaning and purpose is it's almost contradictory to this idea of personal responsibility, but you know, people are complicated. And so, you know, we don't have perfectly consistent beliefs. So we often have contradictions. Uh, and, and this is a feeling of lack of options, right? So if, if, if personal responsibility is a, is a sense that you have indefinite choice in your life, you know, lack of options is the exact opposite and it leaves people feeling constrained. So, so 
you know, if you look at somebody in their midlife who's got professional responsibilities, they've got family responsibilities because they've got children, they've got responsibilities to their peers or friends and, 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 and any other responsibilities that you might have outside of your life. You know, some of that anxiety that, that, that men feel at this part of the, in, at this point in their lives, um, is a lack of choice. Uh, you know, it's funny, there's, there's, there's this moment in, I think Shrek three. And so, you know, Unfortunately, because I've got young kids, a lot of my references aren't popular culture references. They're going to be references from kids' movies, but but this one's kind of this, this one's good, and it, it's it's the that's, way that's pop that's pop culture. That's that's all good. Perfect. Uh, so so that, I think in, this one starts in it's at the beginning of Shrek three, I think, and Shrek now has something like six kids. They're all kind of bouncing around, and and you know you know the way that the the writers when they write. Uh, the scripts for these kids' movies. There's, there's always in my mind kind of two scripts. It's the script for the kids, the, the larger story arc, the simple story arc that the kids get to follow. But it's also interlaced with a, a, a story for the adults as well. And so, so Shrek 3 sets this up by, by basically painting Shrek as a, uh, as a guy in his midlife with, I think he had six kids or something like that. I mean, it's been a while since I watched it. Uh, and, and what it does is they, they show the routine in Shrek's life. So it's kind of going through a basically a day in the life of Shrek and just showing kind of all the consistent pressures that he has from his family, from his kids and, and, and whatnot. And eventually Shrek has a meltdown and, uh, and loses it. And, uh, you know, and kind of sets up the, the theme for the rest of the movie, which is, you know, Shrek looking to kind of get out of his current life and then finding out, you know, at the end of the show that he could actually find meaning and purpose in his life by, and it kind of misses his family. Uh, I'm butchering the, the narrative a little bit there, but that basically gets to the, gets to the, the point and which is, you know, at this point, if you're really busy in your life, you might feel like you don't have a lot of choice and you don't have a lot of options. Uh, and so your, your, you know, your meaning and purpose is being dictated too much from the outside world. So, so, so what I'm wondering here is whether or not, you know, we need to think about whether there's a balance between, you know, on the one hand, you know, personal choice because having some degree of control or as uh, over our lives and you're feeling like you can author your own life seems to be a critical part of, of finding and meeting your life. Uh, and then on the opposite end, understanding that the world is constrained, that your choices are constrained in some way. Uh, and so, you know, there are things that you don't have control over. And so, so, so somewhere between those two, I think there's a, there's a, there's a path towards understanding, you know, how one creates purpose in their life. There is. So I, I don't think, you know, not, not to belabor this. I, I don't, I don't want, you know, anyone to think um, like th these aren't things necessarily that you're consciously thinking about. Like you would, you know, I, I don't know if you'd create a list of things I can't do things I can do. Um, maybe that'll help. Maybe that won't help. But I think that the idea is just, just to sort of dispel some of these myths. Cause you know, you'll see your bath mat that says, you know, the sky's the limit. You can do whatever you want. And it's just, you know, it's, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. Right. Um, you gotta be realistic about some of these things. That said, um, Mark Manson has a good, um, has a good line when, and when people ask him, what should I do with my life? Uh, his, his rephrasing is what can I do with my time that is important? Um, and that plays into exactly what you were just saying, which is constraints, notwithstanding that may exist. You know, what can I do with my life that is, that is ultimately important? If you can rephrase the question that you're asking, um, it'll help you work within, um, the constraints that you, that you may or may not have. Yeah. It's interesting. It's that in a really clever way, 
helps focus on the core issue. I mean, just think about the question. I was gonna, I'm going to reread the questions here. What should I do with my life? Oh my God. I mean, just, just trying to wrap my head around answering that question. I, 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 the weight and pressure of what do I do with my life? I mean, if I fail at my life, I mean, I've only got one of these. So, wow, I better get this right. Versus what can I do with my time that is important? Focuses my attention, at least when I hear that question, really clearly on the fact that, you know, I've got time, A, and what's important about how I use that time is that I focus it on things that are important. So now the question becomes, what's important to me? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And, and he, he, he refers to one other thing in that context where you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. How do, how do you define something that I'm, that's important? I mean, usually things that are, are, are important are important to you, things that you're passionate about. These things become synonymous to some extent. Um, so another way of, of looking at it is, well, how do I know what's important? It's, it's usually the things that are, that, in, that envelop you. Um, and if I was again to use Mark Manson's words, they are the things that make you forget to eat and forget to poop. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're just so engrossed in something, you probably found something that you're uh, that you're going to be passionate about. So you're very right. It's a much more consumable thing to to ask and answer, not. Uh, what is my life purpose, but a little bit more like, well, what's important and what do I really get engrossed in? Yeah, I'm just thinking about that question for myself. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's it's way easier to answer. I mean, if I, if I were to just do an inventory of my life right now and I think about what's important, you know, I've got a family and, 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 uh, and so that stands out right away. And, you know, as I get busier, especially with mundane tasks, whether it's my job or, or other things, you know, and you, you, you do that kind of retrospective on what's important to me, you know, spending more time with my, with my kids, you know, we did, we did a little bit of that retrospective, you know, the kind of deathbed retrospective in the last, uh, in the last podcast, um, just as, as another way of getting at this idea about what's important, uh, but that can change and that will change as your life goes on. And depending on what life stage you're at, uh, you know, it can, it can be a little bit different. So if you don't have kids or your kids are older and, and, and you're an empty nester, you know, you know, you might be asking this question for the first time in a while because you've got more time on your hands, you know, so what, what is important and you may not be able to come up with an answer, but you can start to think about what's important anyways. You can, and, and asking, and asking the question around things that, uh, that, you know, occupy you and, and, and sort of take you away to another place, um, are important in the sense that they begin to identify and you gotta, you gotta think about what those things are. I mean, cause initially someone will say, well, you know, it's books or movies or, or, um, or other activities that distract, which may be the case, but there may be something buried in there as well. Um, so I think that's a, that's a good, um, that's a good place to start. Now, the obvious uh, answer to some of these things, or, the, or the, the obvious question, perhaps, is a career. So, you know, we talked about purpose in life, and we can identify uh, components that, that deal with family or spouse or otherwise. But then, then we get back to career, and in in many cases, uh, this has been a very important thing for men. They have they have created their identities through their careers. Um, and it, you know, there are theories that say, you know, back to this anthropological view of if the man is supposed to be the breadwinner and the provider, then this is in the modern world, how, how men do that. And so the career has, has become something very, very, uh, important. Um, so how do we think about career then? Yeah, it was, it, it made me think of, uh, 
Dan Pink's book, Drive. Uh, so Dan Pink talks about the some of the keys to motivation. I mean, the, the book Drive is about what drives us. And uh, and he leans into a couple of authors that I mentioned in, in the last podcast, uh, Desi and Ryan, who did a bunch of work on motivation. But one of the one of the, the one of one of the pieces that Dan Pink emphasizes in his book is is purpose. And the way he defines it, and, and this kind of harks back to, to the question that Mark Manson's asking there as well, is, you know, purpose is about working towards something worthwhile. Now, now Dan Pink's book is, is pitched at a business audience, so it's pitched around, uh, around thinking about motivation in the workplace. And he looks at a lot of studies that, that, that drive action in the workplace. Uh, but one of the key pieces of the way that he, he defines purpose as working towards something worthwhile is that what drives you in your job or, or, or more, more broadly in your life is doing something that's intrinsically motivating. Right, and so there's this distinction in psychology between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So an extrinsic motivator is something like, you know, a carrot or a stick. You know, if I threaten to hit you with something, I may get you to do something, but it's not. It's not like you're going to enjoy it very much. Um, and interestingly enough, the same goes for for carrots as well. I, I, I can compensate you to do a job like uh, a, a mundane job, but getting you to perform at a higher level in that job, you know, there's only so much I'm going to be able to pay you before it's, uh, you know, I'm going to get diminishing returns in terms of your performance as well. And so, so in your career or in life, you know, what seems to really motivate people is doing something that they individually find worthwhile. And, and, and Dan Pink will talk about the fact that, you know, people pick up a musical instrument. Well, you don't get paid to pick up a musical instrument and, and learn how to play the piano or learn how to play the guitar or learn how to sing. Uh, but yet people do it anyways. And the reason why they do it isn't because of financial compensation. They do it because it feels worthwhile to them. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And on that extrinsic side, and we touched on this before as well, which is when you look at, um, you know, happiness versus income, uh, it, it flattens out at some point, you know, between 70 and $80,000 of annual income and more money than that doesn't necessarily bring you, um, bring you that much more happiness uh, versus what the job actually is. And it's interesting because there's, there's studies where they've gone out and they've asked people, what, what, what brings you most happiness about your job? So they've asked that, that question specifically. And, uh, they had, uh, this was an HR, uh, HR study. Uh, hold on. I'm trying to find the, uh, the reference of, of who actually did it. Um, it was a, I think it was a North American HR organization. Anyway, they, um, yeah, SHRM and, Interestingly, in the response put compensation number one, um, and I just think that it's a that that's a, such a great indicator of a misunderstanding of of the concept, right? Where um, where it becomes, if you will, uh, a proxy. Um, it's not actually the thing. It's a proxy for something. You're like, I don't really like my job. I don't like what I'm doing. But I guess if they paid me another fifty grand. I, I could do it because that would enable me to do other things. And so all of a sudden pay becomes a number one where that's, it's, it, it's a complete misnomer. Um, it's just a misunderstanding of where, where that uh, uh, intrinsic motivation comes from. You know, the psychologist, Dan Gilbert, he, he's got this book called happiness and, uh, and I'm going to come back to this at some point in the future. Cause I, I'm not going to be able to recount the details and I'll, I'll need to take a look into it. But one of the main goals of his work has been uh, to be able to show that that what makes people happy essentially, and uh, and what he believes is that that our you know in our lifelong pursuit of happiness, 
that most of us, you know, have the wrong schema, that we have the wrong map for how to think about happiness, which speaks to exactly this idea about what we think will make us happy isn't actually what's going to make us happy, like compensation being number one on the list. And, uh, and Gilbert argues that our brains actually systematically misjudge what's going to make us happy. Uh, and so I think, uh, I, Unpacking some of some of those ideas, I think would be would be a good subject for a later podcast, and and, and because I think uh, you know a lot of the work I've 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 done in in uh, in, in my consulting life uh, has focused on applying uh, some of the work in cognitive psychology to to the workplace, and uh, and one of the areas that's that's the most illuminating is is work on cognitive biases. So, uh, you know, uh, there's a really good book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. And Daniel Kahneman was one of the, the founders of behavioral economics uh, uh, and has done tons of work on on heuristics and biases. He had a book in, uh, it was, I think it was in the 1970s, written by him, uh, Amos Tversky and Paul Slovic, uh, which they looked at the cognitive biases, which are these tendencies, these process, processing tendencies in our brains to look at the world in a, in a certain way. And they're essentially, you know, cognitive illusions of, of, uh, of a sort is one way to be able to describe them. And they, they, they process information in very specific ways and can mislead us about the way the, the world actually works. And I think there's, there's, there's some of that going on in this larger happiness, meaning and purpose uh, discussion that's, that's worth exploring as well. Yeah. And since we're on that tangent, I think it was what Kahneman and Tversky that they won a Nobel prize eventually, didn't they? Yeah. For, for, pro, for prospect theory. Yeah. For, or behavioral, was it, was it behavioral finance? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Prospect theory. I, I, I won't try to unpack it here, but it, that, that was the theory that they won the, uh, the Nobel prize in economics for. In yeah. economics. Right. And so there was, I mean, that, that, that's, you know, his, that thinking fast and slow, that's a heavy, that's a heavy read. Um, there, there is something coming out of that, just, just as an example, um, out of that, uh, behavioral finance stuff that they did, um, is if you, the satisfaction you get from finding $5 is a fraction of the, of the disappointment you will feel if you lose $5 right. or insert whatever, insert whatever amount you want in there. Um, you know, losing a hundred bucks or having it stolen will sting. And I think they've even quantified it to something like five. It'll sting five times more than if you found a, the same amount of money. Right. So there's something, something weird in the way that we're, we're wired, but all of it plays into, you know, these biases that you speak to, but in, in our context of happiness, it's this idea that, yeah, sometimes it's, uh, it's not what we think it is. Um, it's actually something else. So I want to go back to this intrinsic motivation because I, I don't want, I don't want to lose that. So, so what is it? How do we find it? Um, how do I identify it? Well, yeah. I mean, the the interesting thing about intrinsic motivation is that it comes from you, the individual, uh, and what is worthwhile for you. So, so you know, there aren't any uh, there aren't any general rules in terms of how you go about finding it because it's something that you have to find individually. This is one of those perfectly subjective things where you know what what motivates one person isn't going to be the same that motivates another person intrinsically. Uh, and I think some of this will t- ties back into. Uh, into personality. I mean, I know you're going to speak about that in, in, in just a little bit, um, which I think actually would be, a, you know, maybe this is actually maybe a really good segue into, you know, the relationship between personal identity and, and career identity. Um, but certainly uh, just to, to wrap that up, uh, you know, intrinsic motivation is uniquely individualistic. 
Yeah. And, and I think, so we touched on this in our last podcast and I couldn't remember the name of the uh, needs theory. It was McClelland. It was McClelland need theory. And, and, and he talked about this power affiliation or achievement as one of the three things that you're going to seek. But exactly as you say, um, this all comes down into ultimately who you are. Um, and it has to start with that. And, 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 and this is in, this isn't meant to be esoteric. So when we say who you are, it isn't like, you know, go find yourself. It's, it's a little bit more simple than that. It's personality based. Everyone has a personality. And for the most part, our personalities um, don't really change over life. And one of the interesting things about, uh, about middle age um, is that by now, and this, and, and if you want some references, the triumphs of experience discusses this in detail. Um, by, by the time you hit middle age, these things are relatively solidified. And what's interesting is that they've solidified because we've created a world or an environment that helps us sort of solidify those things. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If I am someone who is risk averse, I've created a world by now, by, by the time we're in our middle age that reflects risk aversion. Mm-hmm. Um, conversely, if I'm a thrill seeker, I've probably created a lifestyle that is, that is like that. So, so these things tend to solidify in part because they're self-enforcing and in part because also this is, this is what we tend to do. Now, they're not set in stone. That's an important thing to note is that ultimately we can tweak these things since there are some incredible stories of, uh, of men who have made, uh, you know, who have gone from being um, very unpleasant, very non-agreeable, um, agreeableness being a personality trait to completely flipping on agreeableness and becoming um, uh, very friendly individuals later in their life. So these aren't set in stone, but but they do play an important role. So if we start with sort of who who you are, um, that's, you know, you, you can't really get beyond that um, until you understand, you know, what are those things? And we can, we can help you identify some of those. Actually, I was thinking about this the other day. There's, a, there's an app that I had built years ago that helped identify some of these traits. I'm going to see if I can spin it back up in the coming weeks and put it up for people to use. It'll help identify some of those characteristics um, and what they mean, right? Because sometimes it's more difficult to understand what is the implication of that characteristic. So that's sort of the first part. Then layered on top of that are going to be all of your abilities, skills, um, and competencies that you've built out through your life, right? So this has come, become kind of like the, the, the layer cake, if you will, of, of, of these things. So, you know, who you are at the beginning, abilities, which are things that perhaps um, are a little bit more, they're like talents. They're just things that you're good at, right? Like mental math, for example. You can, someone says, imagine this room in blue, and you can. Um, that's kind of like your abilities. And then there's skills and competencies that you built on top of that throughout your life. And that ultimately completes the package of, of who you are. So that's sort of where you start. Next thing you got to figure out is what motivates you. And ultimately the combination of those two things can lead you into, um, into understanding what maybe you should be doing. I think maybe for the next episode, we can start out. I'm going to take the personality quiz cause I haven't done this one yet. <clears throat> and, uh, and we can use me as a Guinea pig to, to launch that conversation. Oh, Careful what you what you wish for. I mean, the, all the outcomes are good, right? I mean, there's no such thing as a bad. Like, it's not going to show that I'm a psychopath, no. <laughs> is it? <laughs> well, well, here's the interesting thing: is that exactly as you say, you know, um, um, all joking aside, is even if you were a psychopath, I'm not. Um, I'm that, not. I'm not. I'm not. 
I don't know you. I don't, I don't, I don't think you, maybe there's things I don't know about you. Um, and, and again, clinically psychopaths aren't, um, you know, we always say, you know, equate psychopaths with serial killers, but psychopaths are simply individuals that have uh, a difficulty feeling. Um, they're actually are very, very charming and nice individuals. They just don't really, they're not very empathetic. Right. So, you know, when, um, they, they'll engage you in a wonderful conversation and then they'll insult you by accident. And when you start crying, they'll kind of look at you and go, I don't, I don't understand why you're crying. And it's not a, it's, you know, in that case, it's, it's just an innocent, like, I don't, I really don't understand. Um, but even as a psychopath, um, there are things that would lend themselves extremely well for a, um, for a psychopath to, 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 um, to work. In fact, CEOs of companies, um, would, uh, uh, would be a wonderful role for a psychopath, uh, because you're charming, you're engaging, uh, but you don't really feel as much, which is, which is the resilience that you would need. Now that's the positive side of all of that. Anyway, so we'll come back to, uh, I think that's great. We can absolutely use you as a, a guinea pig and I'll see if I can get that, that, uh, app spun up for, for others to use. Um, there's, there's one thing I want to come back to, um, so we talked about, so I guess this was sort of the, who are you, right? Starting with the intrinsic motivation, who are you and helping that identify what you should do. Um, and then when you get into the, what you should do, there's a, there's a good, um, there's a good quote I had about, um, I find about career, uh, or a job, I should say. Um, and it went something like this, the ideal job or career is one that you love sometimes can tolerate most of the time and you hate rarely. Um, you know, this, this notion of dream jobs where you're just in love with it every day is, is ridiculous. Like we're not, we're just not built that way. Um, so the, the ideal job, you, you know, again, setting expectations is the one that you're going to get you excited about most of the time. And it's going to be all right the rest of the time. Um, but it's not going to be the, you know, it's rare that, uh, you find something that you, that you're in love with every day of the week. So if, if that's the way that we think about an ideal, um, job or career it kind of raises the question of, you know, may, maybe the, the job or the career isn't, isn't the whole thing. I, I don't know. Does it, does that make sense? Yeah. I, you know, I spent probably the better part of eight years in grad school. Uh, and you have a lot of time to think in grad school and a lot of time to think about what you want to do with your life. And, and it's a somewhat unique environment because when you're spending that much time in school, you know, everybody seems to have the same game plan, which is, you know, you're going to go on and be a professor, an academic of some sort. And, uh, uh, and when that starts to, you know, change or, or, or fall apart potentially, um, you know, the question of what you're going to do with your life becomes fairly pressing. And, uh, and I kind of, in my own life, I went through an evolution, uh, getting out of grad school. Uh, I started looking for a job like everybody else looks for a job when they finish school in the private sector. And, uh, and, and I remember, you know, in the search for the job, you know, I was, you know, I was just going to be happy if I found a job that was going to pay me well enough at that point in time. Um, and I remember at that period of my life, I remember watching this, uh, this, episode of, uh, you know, one of these shows on showcase. Uh, and, uh, I remember a sociologist talking about relationships. The show was about relationships and it provides kind of a nice analogy for, for at least another way of thinking about 
you know, your job, meaning, purpose, and passion. And uh, in this monologue, she was talking about the fact that, you know, in modern society, we put a lot of pressure on our personal relationships or our romantic relationships. And so we, you know, many people, not everybody, but many people expect their partner to provide all of their uh, provide for all of their needs. So, you know, they're going to be your lover. They're going to be your best friend. They're going to be your confidant. They're going to be your business advisor. Uh, and, you know, she was arguing that, that some of this has been, has been driven by, by popular culture, but regardless of what the source was, her main point was that having all of the, all of these expectations on one person is overwhelming. I mean, overwhelming for the individual, because how can one person satisfy every single need that you've got in that regard? And, uh, but also puts an awful lot of pressure on the relationship as a result. And so, you know, you're basically setting yourself up for disappointment if you think your partner is going to be everything. Uh, and she was kind of harking back to a simpler time, I guess, when, when people had more elaborate social relationships, ones that aren't mediated through social media. You had, you know, human contact in other parts of your life. You know, you, you may have gone to, uh, you know, a knitting club, maybe not a knitting club, but some kind of social club where you had a, a strong social network. And so, so there are different parts of your life, there are different parts of you, and, and, and you were able to seek kind of personal meaning or intimacy in other kinds of social relationships. And I think, you know, a job, maybe a job is just like that. I mean, maybe your job is something you do to make money, but your passion is something that you can find in other parts of your life. I think that what I like about that is that we're saying it doesn't have to be a, a wholesome or a fulsome change, right? So it isn't that, you know, if you're, if you're at this point and you're looking for purpose or meaning, it doesn't mean you quit your job, you know, give up everything and start all over. Um, that the, the thing you're looking for may be an add-on. Um, so maybe the part of the challenge was that your career wasn't giving you everything you needed, but it was giving you some of what you needed and all what you need to do is to, to round it out as opposed to replace it fully. Absolutely. I mean, it, it just, a I guess, flip the script a little bit in, in, in another direction. I mean, there seems to be an assumption when you're thinking about a job providing a life purpose that, you know, the job is something that's out there and it has all of these features that if you just find the right one, those features are going to magically plug into all the things that you need, like a lock and a key, and all of a sudden you're going to be satisfied. But maybe it's not about the job out there in the world. Maybe it's more about you. I mean, I, I remember uh, there was this kooky guy I knew at one point in time. He was a uh, uh, he was a tai chi, tai chi teacher, and uh, and we were talking. Uh, you know, this was a bunch of years ago, just talking about you know meaning in life and and uh, and you know, job and purpose. And, uh, I remember him telling me about a story about this, this woman at that time, she was a woman that was older than him. She was in her, well, she was in her midlife. She was in her, her, her mid forties. And, you know, they were talking about, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And she said, you know, I'm 45 years old and I still don't know what I want to do with my life. And, uh, but, but she was fulfilled and she said, you know, part of the, the joy of life is, is the looking and not the, uh, not the finding, right? And so, you know, it reminds me of that that classic cliche. You know, life is a journey, not a destination. Um, you know, as as trite as that might sound, I mean, there is something to be, I guess, said or something to be considered in terms of how much how much of your satisfaction from your work or from your relationships is about your own expectations, and how much is it about you know the perfect job out there in the world. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. And all of this comes down to ultimately making a choice. Um, if, if you acknowledge that, 
what you'd like to do is, you know, be a, the Renaissance man and be a student of life, if you will, and try different things. And that's what you're looking for. Then that's, then that's exactly the outcome is you end up, um, wanting to, and, and ultimately experiencing all of these different things. And that is the goal in and of itself. It isn't about finding the thing to lead it to some conclusion. The answer may be, no, I'm just going to do all of these different things. And, and part of, you know, part of what you should do, and we alluded to this before, is just give yourself permission, right? You want to go take drum lessons, go take drum lessons. Want to go, you know, want to go mountain biking, go mountain biking. Like maybe these aren't the ultimate passion that you're looking for, but these are the sorts of things that begin to, to round you out. Yeah. And it, it, it also made me think about, um, you know, when it comes to a job, I mean, how many jobs are we going to have in our lives? The last time I looked at there or heard one of these statistics, it was something like, you know, the next generation of, uh, of adults is going to have something like 10 jobs in their lives. Um, and so when you look at that statistic, uh, and, and if it holds true, well, clearly there's a lot of people who aren't finding their, their passion if they're moving from job to job. And is the, is the, is the 10 changes, you know, a, a, a forever search for the, for the right job, or is it that, you know, a job can serve a purpose, uh, can provide satisfaction for a certain duration of your life. And then you move on to the next one. I mean, in my own life, uh, I've had how many jobs now? Probably on to my, I think it's sixth, uh, sixth job. And every job I've enjoyed. Uh, every job, uh, when I first started it, uh, I'm a curious person. And so, you know, the newness of the job and just exploring a different part of life and, and doing work in a slightly different way, because my jobs were all happened to be uh, different kinds of roles, all kind of related, but, but, but very different at the same time. Uh, and what was fulfilling to me about those jobs was the fact that I got to learn something new. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I, th- I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I wonder if that number of 10 is increasing today. Cause I think I remember back in the day, you know, if your resume had, uh, jobs where you spent, you know, a year or less that was, it was viewed upon poorly. Whereas I think at this day and age, that, that, that world has changed. Well, yeah. Uh, in it, fact, it, go ahead. It might've even gone the other way, right? Where, where it's like, wow, you, you have some very varied experience. Good for you. Well, now with the, the, the gig economy, yeah, I mean, people, I mean, d- depending on how you categorize a job, I mean, if it's going from gig to gig, I mean, that number would be, you know, incredibly high. Right. So if you're self-employed, you're working contracts and your contracts are six months at a time, you know, you could conceivably switch jobs twice a year, you know, in a working career of, you know, 20 to 30 years, you know, at the high end on 30, you were talking at, you know, 60 jobs a year. And that's just with two contracts a year. If you're doing, you know, multiple contracts a year, I mean, you know, that number would be even larger. Yeah. And, and maybe that's a good segue to sort of start, you know, talking about all the, all the summarizing, a lot of the things that we've talked about today. And I, I think the one, the one that you mentioned there about having many jobs is, you know, we, we sort of look at midlife in some cases, as we alluded to in our first podcast is, you know, now decisions matter. You know, before I had lots of time and I could try things out, but now, now I'm running out of time and now these decisions carry great weight. Um, and that's, that's not really true. Um, it's, and so I think that for the first thing that we wanted to, to say is it's, it's never too late. Um, there's lots of time to try things out. So, you know, if, 
you just want to get a few more jobs under your belt, try a few more things, terrific. Lots, lots of time to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And maybe just, just to build on that, I mean, enjoy the trying, right? I mean, the, it's, there is a possibility that just the sheer looking for a job or the process of trying on new jobs itself can be something that you can enjoy as well. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and if you go into it with that mindset, I think that, that makes, uh, that makes it all that much more enjoyable. Um, you know, if you, if you go into to the next job with, this is it, you know, I'm gonna, I gotta make this work. You know, that puts a lot of, uh, unnecessary stress on you. I think if it's a little bit more of an exploration, I think you can find a lot more joy in these things. And ultimately very much like, you know, um, partners you may have had, we may have had in the past, there's something good about all of them, as long as you go into it with an open mind, even if it's not the one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, I mean, there's a line that's just running through my head here. Um, you know, it's don't expect the world to solve your problems for you. You know, if you think a job is going to bring all the meaning that you want into your life, I mean, you're basically making a huge gamble that the world's going to cooperate, right? We talked a little bit about luck and chance. And so, you know, I think, wouldn't it be better if you had some degree of control over that? And I guess the flip side, what I want to make sure that you know, anybody who's listening also thinks about is when I say that it's not to put additional pressure on the individual. So now it's primarily responsible because earlier in the earlier in our discussion, we were talking about uh, making sure that people didn't feel the pressure of having complete and utter responsibility for everything that happens in their life. But there's probably a middle ground somewhere in between where, you know, you don't count on the world to make me, you know, make you happy by providing you the right job at exactly the right time. Um, on the other side, you're not responsible for everything that happens because there's a sheer amount of luck. But when it comes to your attitude about those things, I mean, that's where I think there's a real, there's a huge opportunity to be able to, to, to make a shift and, you know, be curious and enjoy the things that you're doing when you're doing them. Yes, absolutely. Right. Right. Um, so never too late. That's, that's an important one. The, the second part is that we talked about is, you know, starting with yourself, each person, each of us has to define what success looks like. And we're naturally drawn to definitions of success that exist in the marketplace. So if you will, what will make me, you know, person of the year, how do I get on the cover of time magazine business week or, uh, uh, or, or some, or I, and, you know, Inc magazine, these are, you know, that's one definition of success. That doesn't have to be your definition of success. It can be something quite different as we talked about. Maybe you want to be a student of life. Uh, maybe you want to be an excellent parent. Those aren't the sorts of things that land you on magazine covers, but they may ultimately be things that are very fulfilling. Yeah. I mean, these days I may be pretty low. If my kids draw a picture at school and happen to remember to stick me in the picture and it's not just my wife, I feel like a lucky guy. That's, that's awesome. Yes. I like it when they do that and they draw hair on me. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's true. There you go. There's success. Um, uh, the next thing you talked about this, you talked about Daniel Pink and uh, the intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. So if you're defining what success for you looks like, part of that has to be, what is that intrinsic motivation um, we talked about also Mark Manson's comment about, you know, the things that, um, uh, the things in which you get lost where time just slips by, uh, that's, um, that's sort of the next thing. 
that you got to think about is what, what are those things? And frankly, you know what they are already. You just have to look around and, and see what it is that you've been doing that has created that kind of feeling for you. Yeah. And that line that, uh, that you shared with me, you know, what can I do with my time that is important, you know, and, and, and I think important to whom? is also a key part of that because as you just pointed out, I mean, if your standard is some social standard, so you're looking at yourself from the outside and judging yourself from the perspective of society and what you think society is going to think of you, that's not the right standard. When you're thinking about what's important, it's what's important to you. And that's where intrinsic motivation really comes in. It's got to be something that you value. True. But, but to, but to maybe push on that a little bit, what if, what if you value that social validation, that would be okay too. It, it would be, yeah. I mean, I, it, maybe we're going to dis- maybe we're going to disagree on this. No, I, 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 no, I don't know. I was just, I, I'm thinking about that, and 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 certainly, there's probably a lot of people who that, that's where they're at, and and uh, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. I'm trying to imagine being in that situation where the things, the way in which I I want to judge myself, the standard is somewhere out there in the world, and I'm just adopting that standard to judge myself by. Um, yeah. I, I think you could. I, I, think, I think you could own it. Yeah, I think you could own that. I, yeah, I think uh, there's always a risk. I mean, the bigger risk on that is putting that kind of success in the hands of someone else, right? So, so you know, as soon as you say my success will be defined by others, um, you, you're not in control, right? So we we agree on that. That that's that's not ideal. But I don't want to take these things necessarily off the table uh, for someone like, for example, for those who want to pursue a career. Uh, in media, acting, any one of these things. I mean, ultimately, mm-hmm. the success of those things isn't in your hands. It's in the hands of the market that decides whether they, you know, they, they like you or they don't like you. So I wouldn't want to dissuade people from doing that. I think it's just more of awareness of, you know, there's, there's some successes that you can own more or the criteria that you can own more than others. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm convinced. Uh, yeah, there's a lot more nuance there than, uh, than I think I was, I was assuming. Hold on, I'm going to write that down because <laughs> maybe that's my success yeah, man, criteria. I got, I got no problem admitting when I'm wrong. I got, it, I it thought ha- you weren't wrong. <laughs> it happens often enough. <laughs> not, not wrong at all. So, so that was the intrinsic motivation that, that uh, you had mentioned. I think that was that was great. And I think uh, I was thinking about this. You got to do that. Do with that then is match it to the things that you're you're good at. Like this is this is one of those things where we don't really think about. We're wise whether we like it or not, we're wise. We've, um, we've gathered up all of these experiences and we're wise. And there's things that we have things where we've developed skills and competencies. So, you know, you match that intrinsic motivation with the things that you're good at or you're wise about, and you start getting to something that's, uh, you know, that you, where you can really make an impact. Yeah. I'm just thinking I'm really good at shoveling snow. <laughs> I, I, I mean, this 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 winter has been particularly good for that. Uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if it's my life's passion, but I'm definitely good at it. Well, but think about all everything that goes into that. I mean, there's a strategy to it. You just don't <laughs> dive in, right? There's a pattern to it. You gotta like maybe you're gonna go down the middle first, right? Because you don't want to shovel onto a pile and then move the pile and move the pile, right? There's there's things there's things to it, and we don't. It's it's you know what? It's a great example. We would never think about it. 
but you've developed an efficiency in shoveling snow because of the experiences that you've gained. A, that's transferable, and, and B, it's <laughs> you may not even be aware of a skill set that you built up. Think about all the other ones that you know that you may not be able to name off the top of your head where you have something very similar. Uh, that's a good point. And that's a good. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, and I want to see this. I would be. I'm going to ask you more more about this later. I want to know your strategy because I've been questioning mine recently. Sure oh yeah, no, I've got I've got I've got a little bit of OCD when it comes to shoveling. You know, there's there's certainly and I and I I've, I've been playing with the strategies trying to figure out what's the most efficient way to be able to move the snow. Uh in the end, you know, I don't put a lot of pressure on myself because it's all exercise at the end of the day. <laughs> I just I just I'm sorry, I'm just picturing the, the folks out of, you know, on the West Coast being like, I don't want I don't understand what they're talking about. Just, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Um, so, uh, leverage your wiseness, uh, if you will. And, uh, you know, going back to Mark Manson for another one, which is decide the pain you want. I really like that. You know, we, we can't fool ourselves into thinking that whether it's a job, whether it's something we're going to do on the side or any one of these things isn't going to have some pain associated with it. So it's a, it's a conscious choice we have to make and it's easy to romanticize the benefits, right? Oh, I'm going to start a business. And it's going to make money. You know, those are those are easy. Um, you got to flip that around with. Then I'm going to, you know, work seventy hours a week, and I'm going to do menial tasks. You know, pick that uh, consciously. Pick that kind of pain. Yeah, I like that. Um, and then, and then the last one. And this one's it's, it's funny. You write these things down. You realize you're writing to yourself. Uh, pick one. Just pick one. Um, I, this is, this has been the bane of my, uh, my dilemmas is, is, uh, not really being able to pick one. I can usually get it down to two or three from five, but just down to one is tough. Um, that doesn't mean you should only ever do one thing, but I think, you know, as we're talking about, um, what you do at this stage of your life, I think it's important if I can take anything that I've learned here is do, do pick one. Um, and the caveat there is it's not one forever. It could be one for a month, um, or it might be one for a year or five years, but you're picking one and then moving on to the next. Um, there's an interesting phenomenon that happens when you, when you focus on one thing versus multitasking. And a lot of these studies have been done around multitasking that essentially say there's no such thing. It's a, it's a misnomer. Mm -hmm. Computers multitask. We task switch. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a cost associated with task switching, you know, on a regular work day it can take up to 20 minutes for you, for your brain to refocus from one task to a vastly different task. Um, so now imagine if you're, if you're trying to do many things, you're never really giving it a hundred percent. If you focus on that one thing, you'll end up having these epiphanies over time because you're focusing on that one thing. Um, it has a compounding effect. Gosh, that explains my entire week last week. Um, <laughs> yeah, task switching. I, I remember working with uh, uh, this guy. He was a brilliant consultant. And uh, and he was very, very careful about 
task switching. And he used to always talk about the fact that, you know, he was really good if you put him on a project and he would go deep. And, and some of the stuff this guy came up with was, was absolutely amazing. Uh, but he got super anxious whenever he had too much task switching involved because, as he put it, would point out, he's like, just the cognitive load of shifting from one task to another and trying to, you know, as it were, upload all the new files that he needed and being able to shift his thinking to be able to adapt to the new topic uh, was exhausting. And if he had to do too much of that in a day, he was never productive. No, and it's it's the it's the it's funny. I see this with some of the the uh, the, the newer folks that come around some of the the clients I work with and you'll you'll see you'll see some of these folks in there and they're very good very good and it looks like they're processing through a lot of stuff you know, they'll whip through emails they're they're on slack they're they're on text they're on whatsapp they're whipping through these things and from a volume perspective they're doing really well i guess but when you look back and you say now now show me like the depth um uh, in in what you just did it, it isn't these are reactive type uh, activities there's no real depth for because for you to have that kind of depth of thought, uh, you you need some time. Uh, interestingly, as you get older, we're able to produce a lot of that depth without um, without necessarily the same amount of time, just because we're better at it. Um, but nonetheless, it's uh, it definitely is a component of, of time in there. So that brings us to the end of episode two. This was a relatively big and heavy topic. So as you think through it, we'd love to hear what else you'd like to hear about. Maybe we need to unpack this one a little bit more. As before, the best way to get a hold of us is through the contact us form on our website at the mamclub.com or on Instagram at mam underscore club or Twitter, real mam club. Thank you all very much for listening. Manly hugs. We'll chat soon.